0: welcome to built to go a van life podcast i'm your host jeff wag coming to you from the college of curiosity this time in episode 41 we're going to talk about winterizing your van and by that i mean winterizing your van so you can keep using it we'll also talk about a code scanner and why it's something you might want to carry with you a tale from the road about an odd kansas couple a product review of the Solar Bag Camp Showers, and a place to visit that is the Garden of the Gods. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for being here. Before we get started, just a quick note. I have a friend named Matt who happens to share the same taste in clothing and suitcases that I do. And he also happens to own an e-tool. Again, an e-tool is an entrenchment tool. It is a type of folding shovel issued to military people. He used his actually in the military to do a number of different things. And he wanted me to share with you a caution. And that is that the modern e-tools, the ones that fold into three pieces, basically, have these collars that need to be tightened. And if you don't tighten those collars properly bad things can happen, such as fingers can be cut off. So if you do have an e-tool and you plan to use it, make sure those collars are very, very tight. So thank you for that, Matt. We really appreciate the safety tip there because fingers are rather important. This time we're gonna talk about winterizing your van. And okay, this is a fairly common topic this time of year, but I wanna focus on winterizing your van so that you can keep using your van. See, in the RV world, a lot of people put their RVs away for the winter, and they winterize it, and to them, that means they can't use it anymore. And basically, all it entails is draining all the water, maybe removing the batteries and bringing them indoor, and then running propylene glycol, a.k.a. pink RV antifreeze, through all the drains and faucets and everywhere that water might gather. Now, you can certainly do that in your van, there's nothing stopping you, but it does rather limit the use of your van. And I don't think van life people are the kind that want to put their vans away, especially if you're full-time, obviously. So let's talk about things you can do to get your vans ready for winter. The very first thing you should do is stop concentrating on the back of the van. I mean, I understand that in the van life world, if you, like, search on youtube for a van tour they almost never open the hood it's like it doesn't even exist it's like oh yeah there's all that engine stuff up front that makes the van go but look what i did in the back look how my bed floats from the ceiling or whatever but when winter's coming you really need to focus on the engine you need to spend some time under there and make sure everything's in good shape if you break down in the summer It's an inconvenience, perhaps a major one, but if you break down in the winter, especially if you've chosen to go somewhere remote, it is a potentially life-threatening situation. You can survive if it's 100 degrees out as long as you have water, but if it's 0 degrees out Fahrenheit, negative 16 or so Celsius, you are in trouble. You are in danger of dying. So your vehicle's ability to move is key to your survival. Super important. So what types of things should you look at under the hood? First, you want to make sure your antifreeze is in good shape. They sell these tools. They're like $4. They're little plastic reservoirs with a bulb and a little tube. And you stick the tube in the radiator when it's cold, suck up some antifreeze, and it will tell you the condition of your antifreeze. Very good thing to do just to be sure everything's good there. And now a quick note on antifreeze. I've already used the word antifreeze a few times in this episode. And you may be thinking, well, there's antifreeze in the back and there's antifreeze in the front. Are those the same thing? No. Let's clear up this thing right now. In automotive engines that are liquid-cooled, or as they say, water-cooled, there's a radiator. And there's a bunch of hoses. And then there's a water pump, as they call it. And there's no water. It's antifreeze that's in there. And automotive antifreeze is made of a chemical called ethylene glycol ethylene glycol it has a very particular smell that you may have smelled if you've ever overheated and it's usually a bright green color but it isn't always they've started making it out of different colors in my van it's actually blue it looks like windshield washer fluid which annoys me it's important to know that automotive antifreeze is poisonous it is bad to put in anything other than your engine. Don't use it for anything else, and don't leave it laying around. If you drain your own radiator and flush it or whatever, do not leave bowls of ethylene glycol laying around, because animals like it. They drink it, they think it tastes good, and then they die horribly. That's ethylene glycol. Now, with all that scary stuff, you might be thinking, well, why am I putting antifreeze in my water system in the back of the van? Well, that's where we have to pay close attention, because the pink RV antifreeze, again, it's not always pink, it usually is, is propylene glycol. Not ethylene, propylene. And if you don't know anything about chemistry, those two things probably sound exactly the same, but they are worlds different. The only thing they have in common is that they don't freeze. Propylene glycol is safe to drink. Now, you don't want to drink it. I'm not recommending that you drink it. You will probably have some intestinal issues if you do drink it but the point is that if you flush your freshwater systems with propylene glycol and you accidentally ingest some it isn't going to harm you in fact it's actually a food additive you can find propylene glycol in a whole bunch of things that you may use on a daily basis but it's not appropriate to put in your engine because it doesn't withstand the same temperature range that your automotive antifreeze does Depending on how your rig is set up, you have to make a choice if you're going to live in your van in the winter. You have to make a choice of keeping your van warm all the time or keeping it safe from freezing. So Here's an example of how that works. If you live and work out of your van all the time, if you are always in your van, as some people are, then you're going to have a heat source. I recommend the cheap Chinese diesel heaters as being the most effective, cheapest, and most reliable heat source in the winter. This episode isn't about that, but whatever, you have a way to heat your van. That's good because that heat that's going to keep you warm is also going to keep your tanks and pipes and water system warm. If you wish to go that route, I strongly recommend two things. One, make sure your build has good insulation because it's going to come into play a lot to keep your vehicle warm in the winter. Number two, make sure you have a plan if something goes wrong. Here's the danger. Let's say you're using the the cheap Chinese diesel heater and then you run out of fuel. Well, it's going to get very cold in your van and things are going to freeze. And that's bad, especially your water system. Your big water tank, if it freezes, it's usually not the end of the world. Most plastics that are used for water tanks are designed to expand a little bit. Yes, you could burst it, but in my experience, the five gallon jerry cans I use that I got at Walmart, they can freeze solid and are just fine. The real danger is in your faucet, water pump, and things that have small amounts of water in them that when they expand can cause serious damage. You can destroy your faucet very quickly if it goes below freezing and you haven't winterized it. So if you're gonna do the warm van option, you have to have a plan to keep it warm all the time. Now, for me, that doesn't work because I'm not in my van all the time. And it may not work for you. Let's say that you are living in your van, but you also have a job that you go to and it's an in-office job. Well, then you're leaving your van in the parking lot and it's going to freeze unless you leave the heater on. And yes, you can do that with the cheap Chinese diesel heaters or any heater with a thermostat, you can do that. But again, you have to plan for failure because if your battery dies or you run out of fuel, it's going to freeze back there and things are going to break and be bad. So in the cold during the day, warm during the night method of winterizing that I use, I simply change how things work in my van. I winterize my faucet and my drain. Because in my van, I've got a sink with a faucet. Very simple setup. I pour antifreeze down the drain, and I make sure that I run the faucet with antifreeze instead of water. So when I see the pink liquid coming out, I know I'm good. Then I turn the faucet off, and I basically don't use it all winter long. Yeah, this this isn't convenient, but it works. In the van, I keep a gallon jug or so of fresh water. And I make sure that that doesn't freeze. That means if I go somewhere, like if I go into the office for the day, which I don't, but I'm suggesting that maybe you do, I bring that gallon of water with me. That water will always stay warm, but the rest of the van is going to get cold. Now, I do use the drain in the van in the winter. I will use that water from that jug as I would normally. Say I wash dishes in the sink, which I will do. I will drain that water into the holding tank I have. Now, my holding tank is a collapsible water jug. It can stand freezing with no problem. But I also don't have to worry about that because every time I leave the van or every time I know the van is going to freeze... I pour a little bit of antifreeze into the drain. A little bit, half a cup. It doesn't have to be much. That's enough to keep me going in the winter. I have everything I need. Now, I don't have a large supply of water, obviously. I'm dealing with a single gallon of water, so I need to be able to refresh that frequently. But hey, it's a gallon of water. Worst case scenario is I would have to go to the grocery store every day and get a jug of water. It's doable. And you can even buy those three-gallon jugs, too. It's, you have to figure out your own circumstance and how much you want to carry stuff around. But the key is that your drinking and washing water will never freeze, and you have to have a plan for that. And if you're going into an office every day, it's easy. Just bring it with you. Now, there's more things we do in the van than just drinking water and washing with it. We also may have a toilet, like a cassette toilet. Well, we don't want that to freeze either. So we fill it with washer fluid. Now you can use the pink propylene glycol RV antifreeze, but it costs more than washer fluid. Winter washer fluid has a high concentration of methanol in it, and it will protect your toilet from freezing too. I used it all winter, last winter, it works fine. It doesn't harm the seals or anything, and the antifreeze just ends up going into the wastewater and then it's disposed of the same as you would anything else. I mean, this is not the nicest water in the world. Having a little bit of methanol in there isn't going to harm anything because you are only discharging this into appropriate places. This isn't something that's going to end up in the environment without being treated. Now, if you have a composting toilet, you have a different problem. Composting works by an action where there are microorganisms interacting with your waste. That process will slow down, and that can be a little bit of a worry, but the real issue is if you have a urine diverter, your urine freezing because when that freezes, it can burst and then you're in rough shape. Very simple solution for that is add a bit of RV propylene glycol antifreeze in there or even a little bit of washer fluid, either or. The trick, though, is that a lot of people with composting toilets will dump their urine basically out in the wild, which is normally fine in small quantities. But now you've introduced some antifreeze and maybe some washer fluid. Propylene glycol, I think, is probably better for the environment. But in truth, the methanol is going to evaporate very quickly. So, anyhow, just making you aware, you can make your own choices. That said, as long as your engine is running, you always have an emergency source of heat, and I would ask that you focus on that. And there's a lot more to talk about with winterizing your rigs. You need to check your air pressure, you need to make sure your wipers are in good shape, blah, 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 on and on and on. But for this episode, I just wanted to point out there are two different methods of using your van in the winter. The one I use, I feel like, is a little bit more robust, but... It's not as convenient, and I basically shift how I use the van in the winter, but I keep using it. Tech Talk! So, I have talked before about my ScanGage 2 OBD2 scanner. Basically, it's like this. In most modern vehicles, those built after 95 or so, there is a port under your steering wheel somewhere. It's called the Onboard Diagnostics Port. And we're up to version 2 now. So I'm going to talk specifically about version 2, which has been around for a long time it tells you what's wrong with your car. Basically, this thing interprets your check engine light. That's that's what it does. Your check engine light comes on and this thing has all the data. Now, you may want to carry a scanning tool with you so you can fix these things yourself because oftentimes they're very simple. In older cars, for example, if your gas cap was loose, a light would come on in the dashboard. And that light could mean your engine is destroyed or your gas cap is loose. It's the same light. What it means, you didn't know until you took it to a mechanic, and they ran the scanner tool, and they told you, oh your gas cap is just loose, that'll be $100. You can figure this out yourself. If you get an inexpensive scanning tool, I mean they have them at Harbor Freight for like $20, you don't have to spend a lot of money on this. It works like this. The light comes on, you plug it in, you read the code, and then you basically google the code. That's it. I get a code sometimes on my van, and I've Googled it, and I realize it's not a big deal, and I can reset the code. But here's the trick. If you get a cheap scanner, it will tell you what the code is, and then you can Google it and see if you can repair it yourself. And in many, many, many cases, you can. But not all the scanners will let you reset the code. It seems to be the more expensive ones that let you reset it. And it's a little tricky, too, because if you live in a state that does safety inspections and they read your obd 2 port, you have to wait a certain amount of time between resetting it and going to get inspected, because it will return a state called not ready. This is to prevent people with serious engine problems from resetting it and then going to get an inspection and then passing, and yet still having this major problem, which could perhaps be smog-related. So I highly recommend you look into getting one of these. The cheap ones are fine. I like my scan gauge too because it actually shows me gauges all the time too. I know my water temperature and my tachometer and everything. My NV200 is pretty parsimonious when it comes to gauges. But you don't have to spend $120 on one of these. A $20 one is going to help you when that light comes on. And boy, it has really saved me a lot of money and saved me from panicking when driving down the road and I see that glowing engine light come on, which is not my favorite thing. Tales from the road. So I was just recently in Kansas, as it happens. I just did this really uh, interesting trip where I had people tell me where to go. And they told me to go to Topeka to look at a place called Truckhenge, which I may talk about later. But I found this really nice free camping spot on Lake Clinton. Or is it Clinton Lake? It's one of those. It's just exactly what you want. It had a, a vault toilet. It had fresh water defined camping spaces, flat land. And I didn't actually use a camping space, of course, because I have a van. I just parked, pulled in there far enough away from the highway that there was no noise, lots of trees and birds and animals. I mean, it was, it was a really great spot, but as happens when you go to campgrounds, not every camper is as courteous as the others. And there was this couple who had kind of just like, thrown all their stuff all over their campsite. It was just stuff everywhere. It looked like a yard sale. I'm not really sure what was going on, but they weren't bothering me. So I just moved down and it was fine. Later on, I noticed that they had loaded all that stuff into a late nineties Ford to such an extent that the fenders were basically touching the tires. This thing had maybe an inch of ground clearance and it was severely sagging in the rear where the trunk was such that the vehicle could barely move but they managed to drive it up to the vault toilets and then spent half an hour there now vault toilets are functional but they're not the most pleasant places to be so i'm not exactly sure what was going on there and i didn't inquire to find out but what happened afterwards was an interesting lesson in physics As they started to pull away from the vault toilets, it seemed like they were having trouble with the back of the car scraping on the ground. Well, what's the solution? You might think the solution would be to remove stuff from the trunk and lessen the load on that poor vehicle, but no, they had a better idea. The husband got behind the wheel, rolled down the windows, and asked the wife to get on the hood, which she did. She laid on the hood, reclining against the windshield as though it was the best seat in the world, and that made the front sag more and raised the rear just a little bit, and they were off. Yes, they drove off like that. They were not going very fast, I have to say, and I don't actually know how far they got because by the time they got to the entrance to the campground, I had already packed up and was leaving. I don't know what their long-term plan was but uh, it just goes to show that there's a solution to every problem. Those solutions, though, are just not always good. Okay, product review. I, like almost everybody else who starts camping for long periods of time, bought a solar shower. Basically, this thing is a five-gallon bag that has a clear window on one side and a black piece of vinyl on the other side. It has a couple feet of hose coming out and then a little shower head very simple and the idea is you hang it up the sun heats up the water and you have a nice warm shower and they work I mean th- th- there's nothing that can't work here but there's a couple of things you should know first off you want the clear window side to be facing the Sun not the black side which is a mistake I made it heats up faster that way the infrared rays will actually penetrate the clear plastic and then get absorbed by the black plastic, but only after passing through the water. So the water is absorbing some heat as this happens, and then it kind of bounces around in there. It seems a little counterintuitive, but you're not trying to heat up the plastic, you're trying to heat up the water. So having the rays go through the water before they get to the plastic actually makes sense. And it can take a couple hours to get a reasonable water temperature, but you can. You can make water that is too hot to use with this thing. The problem I have with this system, other than you're basically you're stuck with taking a shower between 10 and noon, it's the way the shower works. The hose that comes out of these things is very, very flimsy, and to counteract that, there's a piece of rigid hose that goes over the flimsy hose, and you're supposed to hold on to that. And then there's a shower head with a valve on it. And so you're taking commando showers with this, obviously. You get wet, you close it, you soap up, you wash off the soap, and that's it. It does work, but that all that mechanism, all those hoses and pipes and things, they just fall apart constantly. I found that when I was using this, I kept pulling the hose off or the hose would get kinked and water wouldn't come out. And that usually happened when I had soap in my eyes and it was just awkward. I think a better way to use this thing is to actually just treat it as a water heater and abandon the shower part. Take the hot water out of the bag and add it to a better shower system, such as those battery powered pump shower units which I just recently purchased and haven't done a review of yet but I will. But hey, they're not very expensive, they are definitely a way to heat water for free in the summer. (laughs) They're not going to work so well in the winter. Not only that, they're an extra five gallons of water, so if you're in a situation where you suddenly need a way to store an extra five gallons of water, this will do that. And they don't take up much space when they're empty. So I'll have a link in the show notes if you don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm pretty sure you do. Okay, quick resource recommendation. You know how I just talked about scanners for your car. Well, what if you're on the road and you get a code and you didn't take my advice and you don't have a scanner, but you need to know what that code is? Well, if you're in the US anyway, I have good news for you. If you go to any AutoZone or O'Reilly's or Napa or Pep Boy's or any of those chain auto parts stores, they will read your code for you for free. And of course, it's in their best interest. They might They're hoping they're going to sell you something because they read your code. It's like, oh, it's your fuel filter. Let me sell you a fuel filter. But it doesn't matter. They will give you the code. Now, they're not all that great at interpreting it all the time. I highly recommend that you get the code, write it down, and then Google it for yourself. And don't forget YouTube because YouTube is a great resource for solving these code errors. But if you ever find yourself on the road with a check engine light on, Pull into an auto parts store and ask them to read your code. They will take a portable scanner out to the parking lot, plug it in, and read the code. It doesn't take very long at all. Now, in most cases, they will not reset the code. That seems to be something that's universal. You might get lucky, but they will at least give you the code. And you can always do what I did, which was buy the code scanner when this happens to you. In my smart car, I had a light come up and I got the code read and it was really a strange code. It was a CAN bus error, which didn't make any sense to me. So I actually bought my scanner there. So you have that option too. Note that auto parts stores can actually help you out whenever you need something like this done. Okay, a place to visit. As part of my trip where people told me where to go, they told me to go to Garden of the Gods. If you think I'm talking about Colorado, I'm not. In fact, there are at least three places in the U.S. called Garden of the Gods that I'm aware of, and there may be more. Colorado Springs has an amazing city park called Garden of the Gods that absolutely you should go do. But that's not the one I'm talking about. I'm talking about Garden of the Gods in the Shawnee National Forest in extreme southeastern Illinois. Illinois is the second flattest state in the country. The, ol- the only one flatter is Florida. And yet it has managed to produce this amazing sculpture garden of rocks and cliffs and forest and it's beautiful and it is exactly the kind of landscape that you would not expect to see in Illinois. In fact when I shared some Facebook live video of it people thought I was out west. It really does look like that. There's a famous feature there called camel's rock which unlike most of these actually does look like a camel. It's not just a hump it's the neck and the head and it even has a smirk. So that's kind of fun. And there's tons and tons of hiking nearby. In fact, there's a trailhead there for a 300 mile long trail. So you can hike to your heart's content here. But there are two things that I think deserve mention. One is that this is not a difficult place to get to. You can park your car and be in the heart of all these amazing rock formations in just 10 or 15 minutes. It is not a huge hike to get there. And for some folks, that's a big deal because they have mobility problems. So I I definitely want to mention that. The other is, and I'm afraid to put this on iOverlander, but there is a free parking area in Garden of the Gods. It is not in the parking lots. The parking lots specifically say no overnight parking. And there is a campground there, which of course you can use. But there's also the trailhead. There is a large parking area, and overnight parking is explicitly permitted. Now, it doesn't say whether or not you're supposed to be in your van or not, but who's going to ask? The idea is that people will park their cars here and go hiking for the weekend and then come back and get their cars. So what's to say you're just going to live in your van there for that night? I'm not going to tell anyone. It's a good-sized parking area, but it's one that could easily overflow, so I'm afraid that if this, this site gets too broadly broadcast, it's going to be ruined, but I totally could have stayed there easily in in the middle of the forest with no problem at all. And there are toilets nearby and there's fresh water nearby and 8 million different hiking options. So if you're ever in Southern Illinois, uh, if you're in St. Louis or Louisville, Kentucky or Evansville, Indiana, any one of those places, Garden of the Gods is within reach. And it made me happy to live in Illinois knowing that there was such a beautiful place here. Unfortunately, it's about as far away as you can get from Chicago in Illinois. It's five and a half hours drive, and I think it's worth it. Okay, some very quick van news here. I've got three pieces for you. Number one, the Canadian border is now closed until October 21st. If you were hoping to go up to Canada to catch some fall colors... You're probably not going to be able to this year if you live in the U.S. And this is, of course, because of the pandemic and how the U.S. hasn't managed to get a handle on it yet. Another thing I wanted to mention is that there is this startup called Vanly, V-A-N-L-Y. And they have a website called vanly.app, A-P-P. They don't appear to have an app. At least I haven't been able to find it. But the concept is this. It's Airbnb for people who want to park their vans somewhere with permission. So let's say you lived in the country and you had a big long driveway. You could offer your driveway up on Vanley and people could pay to park there. And that's it. That's all there is to it. And some offer water, some offer electricity, and some of them even offer like sewer services. It's basically people creating their own little campgrounds in their yards. It's still catching on. I only noticed three places in the state of Illinois. There are more out West where camping is much more common and they vary from simply a place to park to a full campsite prices vary. The cheapest I saw was about $10 a night. And that went up to like $60 a night for some of the fancy sites. Personally, I think the price point needs to be lower because people in vans don't expect to have to pay to park at night. I think $5 would be a better starting point. But it's a brand new idea, and hey, I'm anxious to see how it goes. Last bit of news, it's the end of an era Dodge has stopped making the Grand Caravan. 2020 is its last year. This was the invention of minivans in the U.S. Yes, I know Volkswagen had microbuses before, but the minivan was something a little bit different. But that's it. No more. No more Grand Caravans. They've been around for 36 years. Chrysler will still produce minivans, though. They're still going to have the Pacifica and the Voyager, which is, they're basically the same thing. But that's it, folks. If you have a 2020 Grand Voyager with the stowaway seats, you have the last year that they're going to be made. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to this episode 41. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And based on my last week's experience where I had a great time, I can heartily recommend that you have somebody else tell you where to go. It puts you in this frame of mind of exploration. You will find stuff that you can't find any other way. And it's impossible to be disappointed because you have no expectations. So give it a try. And remember until next time what Aristotle said. To appreciate the beauty of a snowflake, it is necessary to stand out in the cold.